0: Thank you. It's so warm in here. It is so warm in my house. Be prepared for that. <laughs> my house will cook you. It's not we'll be sure. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna take some layers uh, off. It's there. <laughs>
1: take some layers off. It's like being a frog. You know the thing about the frog? That I'm <laughs> <taking your laughs> party.
0: Yeah. Hello, beautiful. Being a frog in a hot bath where it slowly cooks you. <gasps> yes. This yeah, that was like last the night in the bath.
1: This house is like the frog, but the human version of that. So this is Broadley Bank. It wasn't that one? Hold it, you? Hmm. <laughs>
0: It's so nice that you've got a view of Kinder from your window. It's good,
1: isn't it? And actually, when we had this window replaced, all the windows replaced with kind of triple glazing and things when we got our air source heat pump, and um, it used to be that there's a bar across the window. I'm going to have to describe it. It's like a standard cross window, but the, the bar used to be higher up. So you're doing the dishes. You couldn't see the top of the hill. And they moved it so that the bar's in the middle of the window. So when you look out when you're washing up, you can see kinder. Of course, you can't see anybody in the garden now because it blocks <laughs> you through straight ahead of you. But who, who cares about seeing people when you can see a hill?
0: Do you think you'll stay living in Edel? Is this a place that you need to be or want to be? I think that experience is suggesting
1: that is the case. I have been elsewhere. And I have come back and back and back. When I didn't live here, I was always back. To the point where, when I moved home, I remember uh, Belinda. Have you interviewed Belinda for this podcast yet? You no, should, I, I should do. You should do. Yeah, it's it's always good to chat to her. But Belinda, who is our uh, well into her nineties um, resident, has been in Newell all her life. She was just like, well, you, what did you leave? <laughs> <laughs> that was generally the. Con- did you go somewhere? It's like, yes. <laughs> not just been in Upper Booth all this time. Because <laughs> uh, when you live in Upper Booth, it can feel like you've lived on a different planet and nobody knows what's going on. But I find I have a very useful, <laughs> defined sense of something that's homely. Um, I'm I'm learning that about myself. I'm doing lots of learning at the moment about myself. Yes, it would seem that familiarity and predictability are two things that I am very driven and drawn to which is I think probably why I keep coming back here apart from the fact it's gorgeous and all the romance of it it's where I'm from and I find things being slightly controlled and Edale is just so much an example of that because we don't have a big turnover of humans so I don't know it's kind of um I'm sure there's other places like it but it's a fairly unique kind of <laughs> little pool of circumstances where not many people move in and out it's not got a big turnover it's a very settled place really um and that I find that very comforting in my daily life. I suspect, so yeah, <laughs> I find when when I talk about leaving, you know, when I got together with my partner who lived in Stockport at the time, uh, obviously houses are so much cheaper in Stockport as is life, and that would have been the practical thing to do. And every time we got to the point of seriously talking about it, I just cried, just my, just, my emotions just took over, and I just couldn't. I couldn't handle it. And so he moved to Edale. <laughs> and we made it work. I don't want to say that I cry to get my own way all the time. That's not what happened there. But I just... Or uh... <laughs> that moving to Stockport should move anybody to tears. It's a very nice place with a lot going for it. But yeah, I do. I definitely feel... Um, I sometimes talk about the, the way the valley's shaped. is very cocooning. It's very much, you know, you live in a bowl. And you do feel very protected by hills here. Uh, a bit like being in a cot. So, yeah, there's something in that. That was a long answer for you, Sarah, but uh, who knows? No, um, that's to be honest, that's <laughs> 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 ask a question, let them ramble. <laughs> <laughs> You've come to the right place. Uh, I do think I could live down the valley quite easily as well. The Hope Valley to Eadale is, is home to me as well. I think it's a large possibility that I'll end up somewhere else in the Hope Valley because of house prices and practicality of uh raising a child in a place where there's not much space and having dogs and uh, wanting to have a room where I can get out microphones and leave you know recording stuff set up and all that kind of thing Um I'm really lucky to be in the house I'm in at the moment and it's gorgeous but it's not particularly large for two adults who work from home to be raising a small child we're doing okay just now but we'll see if we end up down the valley in something
0: with one extra room <laughs> <laughs> what was it like growing up here
1: there's lots of stuff, I think, that are storybook perfect about it, that people would go, it, you know, must be absolutely ideal. And when I was a kid, there were, I think there were less people about, so I'm not sure how happy I would be sending Elle off on a bike at nine years old, cycling up and down the valley, but that's what we used to do. We used to go out on our bikes, we cycled around a lot. Before that, um, so I'm from Upper Booth at the top end of the village, and... We just used to be outside all the time. We were just outside. There was a big family who lived up at the Lee Farm when I was at primary school. So from when I think I was about seven to nine or ten, they had seven kids. And one was a year older and one was a year younger than me. And then there was a few younger than that. It was literally get home from school on the bus that dropped you outside your front door. And you threw your school bag over and just went and... You were outside until you needed some flapjack and then you went (laughs) home, and got some flapjack and then you went back out and you were filthy all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Filthy all the time. But she, you know, my mum is an outdoors human. She, I think she loves the wilder side of things and was perfectly happy for us to be making dens and scrambling around the place and having a fun old crazy time outside. So yeah, it was a lot of outside play. I think the flip side of that kind of very idealistic world is quite an isolated childhood and quite a lonely childhood. I think I was lonely a lot when I was little and I don't think I appreciated that until I was an adult and you start reflecting back. You have good friends, you know, one of the things about going to a small primary school, which edale still is, is that you have to get on with people, you know, there's not a kind of like, well, this person's my friend, but, you know, that. But we don't really, you have to, you know, you just do... And we had one of the biggest school years. There was five of us in our school year. Whew. It was very exciting. And you may not be humans that have necessarily loads in common or similar interests. or And, you know, you probably do bully each other a little bit because kids are horrid. Kids are horrid. <laughs> and we certainly were back then. We weren't teaching love and kindness and empathy very much when, you know, in the 80s. We were pretty brutal. It was a bit Lord of the Flies sometimes. But you did somehow just get on. I mean, I'm saying this from a very privileged side who probably was on the bullying side, to be honest. So maybe we didn't all get on and maybe everybody else is horribly scarred, but they seem okay. But yeah, so it was, you you got on with people, but you lived a long way. It wasn't like you just, apart from the Robertsons up the road in that kind of two or three years that they were there, you didn't pop around to somebody's house. You had to be driven. You know, I did used to sneak off with a quid from, well, it wasn't a quid, it was about 40p from the cupboard (laughs) and run over the top of the bumps. Uh, broadly bank to pennies to get penny sweets and run back without mum noticing so you could get away with stuff and you you <laughs> could nip to the village and see your friends if you wanted and i don't think i had any friends that lived in the village laura was in olibrook laura skillen who's obviously still in E Dale, and james butcher was at the mill and they were the two i played with so you don't you know you you weren't bobbing off to the mill it's like four or five miles but yeah so it was yeah i remember being by myself a lot sitting in fields a lot but. singing a lot and I think more in those kind of teenage years when you I don't know when you there's so much going on there's so much change there's all that kind of stuff you know uh, the train line makes everything much better just got on the train I wrote a song called Promises uh, which is about that experience of you got on the train at Edale to go to Sheffield and your friends would get on at Hope and then Bamford and Havisage and you you know by the time you got to Sheffield it would just be like rammed with teenage girls 13 year old girls just laughing hysterically and you go to Woolworths the Odeon and then you come back Woolworths, on the train well, oh yeah go to Woolies and get your <laughs> bubble gum those random pink bubble gum packets and my friend Rachel who I'm still friends with she moved to Carver recently which is exciting I remember going Harvards on a soundtrack of the Lost Boys oh yeah when we were about 14 I don't think I ever paid for my half she did keep reminding me for a while and she gave up <laughs> <laughs> from that that was Wallace yeah oh it had some great things Wallace but yeah so you you know but getting to the train was two miles so you had to rely on somebody to drive you to the train and and trips out aside yeah I think it's it can be isolating it can be lonely especially in the winter when you're not nipping out because it's muddy and cold and but uh, yeah then I remember trying to go over the bumps in roller skates with tennis rackets and going to Jane Beanies who used to have the swimming pool in her garden which is where we all went when we were kids it was absolutely from May to September every child was in beanies every day so you'd find a way to get to beanies and you know summers I suspect were pretty idyllic and winters I suspect were really lonely.
0: When did music become a big part of your life? When did it become? See, for
1: me, music was always present, whether that was just around the house. My dad sang a lot around the house. My mum played piano. We had the piano underneath my bedroom, and I remember the sound of it coming, you know, thin floors, (laughs) old floors. (laughs) I remember the the sound of the piano coming up. So it was always there. My mum actually, I have to give her huge credit for really being very keen that we engaged in culture and activities and stuff. She really tried to get us out and doing things. So I remember going to the opera house in Buxton, you know, earlier than I can really remember anything. What I remember, it was an opera. We went to see a kid's opera and I remember... There was a proscenium arch that they'd put like a fish tank round. I, I don't know what it was about at all, but I think there was goldfish that got loose in the plumbing or something. So, but there was, of course they weren't goldfish. I've I realized that about three years ago. I was talking to mum about it. She was just like, they weren't real fish, Bella. It's <laughs> <was> like, what? <laughs> uh, there were obviously little bits of red and orange paper floating around this tube around the house. Oh, but, yeah, you know, I have very early memories of being taken to cultural experiences and I think that's incredible really I think I was really lucky to have that um so I was kind of aware of a culture of music in the wider world but then it was just always there in the house as well and it was always there in Edale too because um there was the church choir there's a great photo of um of the choir I reckon it must be about ninety. 90- Seven, eight no 87 sorry 1987 it's actually at Denise B's house at the moment Denise I need <laughs> to get a copy I keep forgetting to to ask you but it used to be up in the vestry and when they did the vestry up it, I think Denise took charge of it and is looking after it um but it's all the choirs in black and white and then I'm there in a little pink dress at the front so you know I was kind of in the choir before I could do anything else I suspect preschool and the Edel choir's been going forever the church choir I say forever. Of course not. But as long as I've <laughs> existed, which is, of course, forever. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and then there was uh, what is now Downfall Productions used to be called Kinder Players when I was younger. And they would do music halls quite often and musical things. So there was always singing. And it, but th- we did loads of it at school. And then actually at primary school when I was in later primary, kind of our well, juniors, I suppose, we had a headmaster come in who was called Peter Irwin who was from Elephant and Castle in London and was a kind of jazz piano player. And he taught us all the jazz standards and all and loads of music hall standards. You can't keep a horse in a lighthouse and all this kind of loads of stuff. And I loved that. And I absolutely he used to write a musical for us each Christmas would do a Christmas play would be music based. And, you know, we we wrote it. Of course, we didn't. I'm sure he wrote it. But still, I remember being encouraged to write music at primary school and you certainly took part in it. No questions asked, straight off. So it was just always there. And I really resisted the fiddle. So I used to sing, but I hated playing the fiddle. I went to secondary school and there, at Hope Valley College, there was a school, Kaylee Band, run by the biology teacher who was Mrs. Ball, Jane Ball, who's now Mrs. Deal. Yeah, she ran this amazing Kayleigh Band and... Uh, I kind of played in that. I played chuggy fiddle lines, we call them, like like a G string over and over again. Um, and but ended up kind of going to first a Hexham gathering with the school, which is like a festival. It was like a weekend festival for schools and little youth groups and things to get together and play music and do stuff. And then some people, I think, had Emma been one year before me? I think she had. Um, used to go to the Durham Summer School. So Folk Works were a big organisation in the Northeast and they run a summer school in Durham and um, at one of the colleges, Hildenbead. And I went, actually, again, I didn't want to go, and I was kind of made to go, um, which at the time I absolutely begrudged, and now I really appreciate. Um, (laughs) uh, It was a week-long thing, and I turned up not able to play much fiddle. And there were 100 other kids, aged like 12 to 18, all just there to hang out and make music and be sociable. And it was so sociable. It was all about sociable It was nothing about it, music for me up to that point like the violin side of it singing had always been a social activity and the violin side had always been presented as a this is the proper way to do it here is how you hold it here is what you play here is how you should sound and I had no interest in that at all and then I went to this summer school where it was just like hey make a noise doesn't matter what noise it is just make a noise it doesn't matter let's just hang out in here and uh, we'll have a bit of a party and make some noise but mainly just chat and have a party and do silly things and you know and it was just amazing and I fell in with a crowd of people who uh, I just loved and I still love, we're still friends. We um, became a band called the Brat Pack at first and then the pack and we used to go to festivals and play. And it was very much, I mean, even in my first, I remember going to my first fiddle workshop there at the summer school and every, people were all playing a tune, you know, taking turns to play a part of a tune or a little tune. And I sang, I sang Whiskey in the Jar because I was just too nervous to play a tune. I don't think I knew a newer tune. <clears throat> Thankfully I can play fiddle tunes now, um, <laughs> but it came afterwards um but yeah we I mean alcohol came into it very quickly which it did in the early 90s mid 90s we didn't necessarily have a safe youth culture that we do now regarding teenagers and preteens and alcohol and yeah we used to just go and get drunk and play tunes and have parties and in order to do that we needed you know to do it more than once a year the best place to do it was at festivals and so we Needed to get free tickets to festivals. So we formed a band to get the free tickets to festivals to go have parties. And that's how I became a musician. It was basically to drink booze as a teenager. (laughs) 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 Which is a bit depressing. Uh, But it's always been the social side that that drew me in. I loved that. And I think I took the music side for granted because it just was always there for me. And I've always had music in my head. That's always been a a constant. Useful, most of the time, sometimes very annoying, constant. Mm -hmm. Is that I've always been quite a jukebox. And... I mean, uh, yeah, it used to be a bit of a joke sometimes, Be like, Bella, sing us the lyrics said And I'd just be able to sing songs. But I mean, it's going a bit now that just being able to recall anything. I can hear it once or twice. It used to be the case. I could hear a pop song once or twice and I could sing it to you all the way through.
0: <laughs> it's interesting what you were saying about in childhood feeling quite lonely sometimes mm-hmm. and then being drawn to the really social side yeah. of music. So yeah. it sounds like it sort of filled yeah. that
1: gap. I think, I think absolutely and from the age of 13 onwards every weekend and in the summer as well I'd just be gone I'd be on the train now and thankfully my sister Emma was involved as well and she was four years older so I think because she was there it was a bit like oh Bill will be fine off she goes um so I was able just to get on the train any day off you know you're in Sheffield and you're away anywhere so yeah yeah I think you're absolutely right I think I had a longing for a social group which I think teenagers do and actually in my work as a kind of music educator later in life setting up youth clubs and things one of the big things I push to funders is a uh, sense of belonging is that teenagers and especially al- need to find their sense of belonging to something it's really important for the growth of confidence to you know finding your place in the world just to general good mental health and well-being in teenagers they need to find something to belong to and that was what I found to belong to um, and music can play a really useful. Can tool for that because it's especially I mean I say music uh, folk and community musics um, I'm sure classical can for some people as well but there is always a competitive edge in classical that I've found which doesn't suit everybody and for some people who are just looking for that sense of belonging and a way to express something then just being able to make music without any kind of achievement basis is a really good thing very valuable
0: and how did things lead on to your solo career as a musician?
1: I think probably a few things it's not none of these things are ever very clear-cut are they? I think um, I I loved making music and I loved I, I've always quite liked just standing up and singing an unaccompanied song I don't mind that I don't need to do it in front of people I do find and I used to really actually struggle with getting on stage the idea of performance and competition in general um, when it comes to music but I wanted to have the time to do it and I realised that the only way to have enough time to do it that I wanted to, I had to perform. You have to perform! Mm-hmm. Turns out nobody will pay you to sit in your house. <laughs> uh, which is actually what I'm trying to develop into now is being paid to sit in my house uh, and make music. But I didn't realise that when I was 1920, And I did a degree in English literature but it was... I had friends who had always gone in for the Young Folk Award. And the Young Folk Award I think still happens every year. Uh, it was BBC Radio 2 Young Folk Award back then. And there used to be a semi-finals and a finals and I actually I am um, my boyfriend when I was 16 17 was a sound engineer who did the sound at the young folk semifinals. semi-finals and it used to be that there was like rounds and things so I went and saw the semi-finals when I was maybe 16 or 17 and it was like super cool like I just thought I was just amazed that they you know these young people it was 20 was the cutoff age would get on stage and do these things so I had it in my head that it was a super cool thing to do and it got to me being the oldest I could possibly be to enter and I was like well now or never so I entered and I got through to did we have a semi-final oh, we did we had a semi-final up in Kendall at the brewery in Kendall which was really a lovely venue and then I got through to the final and actually uh, I got through to the semi-final just singing unaccompanied songs and I literally uh, you, you could do three songs up to 10 minutes and I spent like four months just every day I got into really proper like I I like routine and I like having an aim if I don't have an aim it's gone I'm my scatterbrain scatters stuff so I have to have really set things to get stuff done and I was so religiously practicing like two hours a day those three songs loads of warm-ups like just bizarre and it was the first time in my life I got on stage at the semi-final I remember I did my warm-ups for like ages beforehand I got on stage and I opened my mouth and I had my first out-of-body singing experience where my body just did it. Like, it my it didn't matter what my mind do. It could have freaked out. It could have been elsewhere making shopping lists because my, my subconscious my body knew exactly what it needed to do. And it was fabulous. It was such a good feeling. It's totally magic. Uh, but I had just done those three songs so much that it was just like... Phew yeah
0: whatever and
1: it went down really well yeah. <laughs> and people were just like I had no idea you could do that and I was like well I'm not sure I did either uh, <laughs> but do you think
0: it was the consistency of practicing every yeah. single day so yeah. much so that yeah. it just became part of you
1: I think it did and I think it's to do with I mean, what I teach in my whenever I do one to one singing or even in choirs is to learn that singing is all about your mental processes. It's all in the brain. Everything that's happening in your voice, in your lungs, in your vocal box, it's all what's going on in your head. And I think I was confident because I believed I knew what I was doing. And actually, it meant that I did know what I was doing and, you know, I'd done I'd done the work. And what I learned from that, which is something I have carried with me ever since, is that. I don't get on stage unprepared and actually I don't do most of the things like when I teach choirs and stuff I walk in prepared because if it goes wrong if you've done your work it just doesn't matter it just doesn't matter because you know you've done your best you've done your work it's it's just one of those things if you haven't done your work and it goes wrong I don't have the mental health not to beat myself up about that like I don't I'm not A stable enough person to let that go. So for me, I have to get the work in. I have to do the work. I have to know I've done the work, and then I go on stage. And actually, that becomes much, much easier the older you get because there's a part of me now that's just like I've been doing this work for twenty years. I can now get on a stage with very little prep and do what I'm doing. But it's because I am now an expert. Mm. Hurrah! Life (laughs) is much easier. I'm going to be forty this year. Um, So like you know, we played at Blackpool on Friday last week, and Sam and I hadn't didn't realize we hadn't done a duo gig in ages. And we didn't have a rehearsal. We were just playing in this dressing room uh, beforehand, putting together a set list. And I was just like, "Oh, let's do that." And Sam's just like, "I've never played that song, Bella." And I'm like, "Oh, okay, let's not do that song." And we were doing a song I love called "Queen of Carters Bar," and I realized I hadn't sung it in about four years. I was just like, "I have no idea what the words are." So I just googled the words and I had to check through, and I pretty much remember them. But you know, I don't know. It's much easier now, but certainly when I was younger, yeah, be prepared, know what you're doing know stuff and then and then if it goes wrong then you've covered yourself you're okay
0: it sounds like you actually really enjoyed that as well you really mm-hmm. enjoyed all of that like the dedication to it the yeah practice yeah
1: i suppose i do i mean i get bored very quickly which is a bit problematic <laughs> <laughs> but yeah no i as, as long as i manage to make it manageable bite-sized pieces of practice and you know weave it into the but i do uh, yeah i like routine uh, i don't do very well on routine I have two battling forces in my body, one that is completely scattered and <laughs> never has any control and is, never knows where they've left anything. And then I have a part of, you know, the other part of me that's just like, must be routine, must be predictable. And yeah, it's, it's kind of chaos up there. Mm. Yeah,
0: there's a lot going on at once. <laughs> there is a lot going on at once, yeah. That's
1: why I like to sleep. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, just take a break from it all. <laughs> you
1: try anyway. Everybody shut
0: down. Come on, shut down now, shut down. <laughs> and do you feel that, Living in Edale mm-hmm. and being surrounded by, like you say, the, the sort of in this bowl of, yeah. uh, of mountains and ridges, and yeah. do you feel this area has inspired your music?
1: Oh yeah! Again, is it you've got tippy taps, with little Debbie feet? <laughs> Hello, Debbie dog. <laughs> Is it because, oh my goodness, isn't it gorgeous? It's very Victorian sometimes the way we talk about hills. And I've got a book <laughs> on the shelf next door, on the poetry shelf, that's called In Praise of Mountains. And, you know, the Victorians loved it around here. I've got Ballads and Songs of Derbyshire next door as well, which is where they just romanticise about, oh, the glorious... Um, so, you know, I could do that. But really, <laughs> I think for me it's again it's tied into this kind of famili- familiarity and safety so from my bedroom window in upper booth I've got I had a view across of Tor and the ridge over there. And from that angle, it looks very much like there's a dragon asleep on the top of the hill. So where the, the kind of nick in the hill is, is kind of the resting head. And then you've got two wings that kind of come up. The hill's kind of like shoulders on each side, and then they spread across. So from a very early age, I thought there was a dragon asleep on the Great Ridge. What nonsense. It's a dragon. Of course it's a dragon. So you kind of, I think... I suppose I'm quite lucky that I grew up here with a child's mind and a child's eye of all that stuff because this place is very full of spirituality, I suppose. I'm saying that like spirits, actually, rather than spirituality. Like little childhood stories like still I you know Loose Hill and Wind Hill are giants for me I know there's the kind of it's the losing battle and the winning battle or is it actually just Wind Hill and something you know but I was told at some point in my life that it was two fighting giants throwing rocks across at each other and one won and one lost and then the giants turned to stone so I still you know for me that's that's what I picture and you know so Uh, Yeah, maybe growing up here gives you that handy childhood view of the world. Um, But I think it's mentioned in my songs a lot. Like it just creeps in whether I want it to or not. Whether it's traditional songs, because I did an album called The Dark Peak of the White way back in 2012... I love that album. Thank you. Yeah, I love that album Do I need to do another one actually. I'd like to do another Peak District album. So that's obviously songs from the area, you know, and I researched songs in the local area. I wrote tunes to the things that didn't have tunes. I wrote songs to stories that didn't have songs but then you know I do write quite a lot of what was considered more modern music modern music it's not hip-hop but um (laughs) you (laughs) could try that I should I should I don't know I I think I'll leave that to the people who can do that Uh, so yeah but I do write kind of singer songwritery stuff and you know I had a phase where I had a band that was quite electric and it was lots of drums and quite modern sounds and it just crept in all the time like there's little lyrics that creep in and sometimes actually it's full songs about I've got an album called with the dawn and the opening song is called the first light of the morning. And I literally wrote it. Yeah. I wrote it walking from the village back across home in upper booth at like one in the morning on a, in between Christmas and new year in that no man's land. And it was a huge bright moon and snow and frost. And it was, you know, very occasionally you get that weather at night where it's like daylight and it's just mental. Like it's crazy where you can see everything perfectly because the full moon is just shining on diamonds it's mad so I was walking across slightly drunk trying to get home and I remember thinking that somebody was walking behind me because there was a light shining and I was looking back and it was the train signal and um, because the walk to upper booth from the village is largely on an, you know weaving them out of the train lines direction I actually I had a pen and paper in my pocket like you do when you're a writer and I <laughs> leant against gatepost and I wrote down the lyrics and then the next day I sat at the piano and I wrote the song so uh, yeah I mean it's there because i live here and i am an experiential writer i've no idea if that's a word but i'm taking it experiential right Uh, doesn't it It sounds really good (laughs) so i'm quite often just like this is the thing i'm experiencing and feeling and i need to share it with you because i have a thing in me that needs to share things so so that's often there do you
0: find that things just come to you like that
1: I think I go through fits and starts of that so there'll be a little period of time where it just seems to be the case that that's happening a lot um and I don't know what it is about the mental state that I'm in I'm not saying state like oh I'm in such a state but whatever the the, the, the place that my mind is acting in at that time I mean it happens a lot when you're traveling so it could have been that I was only home for a few days and I was in a kind of traveling state because it tends to be when you're on trains and planes and not so much in cars because you're busy trying to drive I think (laughs) but if I sit on a train or a plane I will write a song Like it just there's something about the brain being that state where it's processing a lot but it's also quite relaxed because you're not responsible for something you know when I travel on a train I've written down all my arrival departure times in my notebook so that I'm you know I know what's going on but yeah I I do end up writing in transit so something about that mental state that you're in but then I'll have long periods where I just don't seem to write anything it's just and maybe that's just because I'm doing lots of admin or I'm just being a mum or you know it's and there is a, a a fantastic myth that Writers and songwriters, you just wait for the muse to come to you. It's just like, no, 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 no. And you know, lots of the time uh, I and I know other songwriting friends have spent with. Kind of university age students who are doing songwriter on a thing is lots of your time seems to be dispelling that myth and just being like uh-uh. like no this is a grind fest this is you are gonna have an idea of something you need to do and then you are gonna need to sit down for like if you can hyper focus maybe three days maybe it'll happen in a day and maybe you will have moments like first like the morning where you've written a thing and it's just written and it's beautiful and it's there but um so the Navigator's Bride I wrote for love songs. Uh, which came out in 2022. And I kind of... um, I was putting that album together when I was pregnant with my daughter, and I just... I was singing lots of traditional songs on the record, and it was all songs that actually Edel remind me of anyway. There's a traditional song called Hairs on the Mountain, which I just... I, I can't walk on kinder without singing Hairs on the Mountain in my head, because it just seems to fit the place. And Loving Hannah as well is a song. It's a traditional song I've been singing all my life, but I can't walk past the church without Loving Hannah. I I went to church on Sunday as the opening line of Loving Hannah, and I just, I love it, and it just fits this place. Something about the melody works for me. But I really wanted a ballad on there. I love a big, long story song, and I like writing big, long story songs. It's something I relish. And I had long thought about the fact that there should be a song about the Navigators in Edale, because it's amazing that. You know, in the late 1800s, E-Dale's population doubled for 10 years, more than doubled with working men. Just, you know, imagine if just like 500 buff men turned up in tents and stayed for 10 years in Barber Booth. It would be mental. You know, the whole place would be transformed, especially if we weren't. You know, there was no train line then, so nobody had come and gone. Imagine me and you living here, having never left E-Dale, and 500 buff men turn up in tents. It would be interesting Uh, (laughs) and I didn't quite write that 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 full end of the story but I still find it a really interesting you know thing to have happened to have dug out a giant trash in the joint Debbie <laughs> dug out a giant she's tunnel she's, she's, yeah. yeah excuse me guys excuse me <laughs> why is nobody stroking me just now um yeah we dug out this giant tunnel and lived in this tiny place and yeah so I'd always had it in my head it would be a good story and I I think it was only about two weeks before I was meant to be going to record and something got cancelled oh yeah there was a weekend we were meant to go away I think it was actually Storm Arwen which is very ironic because Arwen is my first name. I'm Arwen Arabella. And it was there was a storm Arwen, which was really weird. I was meant to go up to Scotland to see some friends and we got stormed in so we couldn't go. And it's not often you're just like, oh, all my plans are cancelled. I was like, right, I'll, I'll write this song I've been meaning to write for ages. So I borrowed a book off Phil across the road, who is a great train aficionado and had a book. And I did a bit of reading and I sat down to write The Navigator's Bride. And I think I started it on the Friday and I pretty much wrote solidly till Sunday night like and you have to if you want to um really just make the thing happen and do the thing like there'll be parts of my head that's just like oh I'll just go it's like no no, you just stay in this chair. You are not leaving this chair till you finish this first. Like, you can't, you have to get really strict with yourself. And it's like, somebody's like, Oh, do you want it? It's like, nope, I don't want a coffee. Mm-hmm. I don't want to talk to you. I can't see anybody. Get out of my face. <laughs> <laughs> I will be under the bed until I've done a first draft. It doesn't matter if it's a shit first draft, I have to do a first draft. And then I will allow myself a cup of tea before, you know, you have to get, in order to write and be a writer being you know being able to write something lovely off the cusp is human being able to sit down and be a writer is work it's proper work
0: you have to be able to sit with yourself
1: mm. You have to be rubbish at something as well, and mm-hmm. people find that hard. Mm-hmm.
0: You have to be really rubbish
1: until you're really good, yeah, <laughs> and then you really have to harsh. be rubbish again. <laughs>
0: oh, jebs
1: you don't have to be rubbish. You just have to be cuddly <laughs> and try not to bark at anybody.
0: She's very, she's very. Um, she's not very vocal.
1: <laughs> she's not. She is when she's out and about. And sees other dogs, unfortunately, but no, she just, she just wants love, endless I want love.
0: To, I want to ask you about your name now. So, ah. what, what are the origins of your name? I am actually an elf.
1: <laughs> but my a place called Rivendell um no <laughs> I am uh, I've got two big sisters who are called Beth and Emma and we actually lived in Cholbury in Oxfordshire when I was born so while I say I'm from you day like we didn't move here till I was one so I will always be an incomer but where my family lived uh, mum was in hospital after having me and Beth and Emma went around the village into school and told everybody mum had had a baby called Bella so that was how I became called Bella. So mum then had to think of a name that involved Bella. <laughs> and the Arwen is just a French name. French name. It's not French at all. It's Welsh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be French. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's part of the romanticism. It's, I'm
1: really sorry, Wales. <laughs> it's a Welsh name, Arwen, which I, I presume Tolkien stole the Lord of the Rings from Wales. But yeah, I don't know. They just liked it. Mm, it's a beautiful name. Thank you. I didn't know that. I yeah, didn't know that. Oh, and Arabella Margaret. Just to, you know, throw Margaret in there oh, as well, wow. which was one of my great grannies, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's great having a lot of name. Until you fill in forms, <laughs> 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 which I imagine you have to do quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> I was um, just thinking about you know you saying that you were um, <laughs> getting. Are some you trying to sniff the microphone? dog? Dog nose on the microphone now. <laughs> 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 I was thinking about you walking on Kinder and mm-hmm. singing. Mm-hmm. How does it feel for you when you go for a walk? on kinder or for I know you mm. got into running a little bit at one point
1: I did I'm back out of it at the moment I shall get back in eventually I promise I promise myself <laughs> um how does
0: it make you feel up there
1: a small and I love that I love that about mountains in general and the sea I think they have the same kind of ability to put you in your place and I benefit from that hugely. I think that's very useful for the human mind for something to go, you think your problems matter? Come up here. Look, look how big I am. Look at my giant moors. You could just drown here. Just you know, when I was a kid, it was a bit, you know, it was a very, very different place up there. Um, It was black. You know, and sandy, it looked like the moon. Like it, that, you know, it's making me think of that kind of snow diamonds thing. It was very similar kind of effect of the kind of rock having formed this kind of dust layer of silver on black peat and nothing was growing. So it was like a weird space kind of scape. It wasn't necessarily as pleasant as it is now, I would say. It wasn't relaxing in the same way, but you could drown in a peat bog when I was young, which, you know, was fun as a little danger, <laughs> a little aside, you know. Uh, I don't remember anybody actually drowning in a peat bog, but I do remember Gordon's daughter, Naomi, getting up to her waist once on a uh, a walk. It must have been the Bounds, Beating the Bounds.
0: What's Beating the Bounds?
1: Beating the Bounds is the Edel Boundary Walk, which we do every two years to reassert our territory <laughs> <laughs> I think it's meant to be 16 miles starting on Mamnick and it used to always go in the same direction we used to always go around Brown Knoll where well, you know rush up Brown Knoll that way and then end up Mount Doom as we'd call it where you'd gone down Jaggers and down to the end of Edel End and then you had to go back up Loose Hill when you were exhausted and you already walked you know 12 <laughs> miles and then along back to The Nick, but they to the pub, to the (laughs) pub to the Nick, and then down to the pub. Um, but you know, I I think now they do it every two years, still, but they change directions every two years to add a bit of variety. Woohoo! (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> uh, take it where you can get it. Um, and the last time I did it was actually probably about six years ago. I seem to always be away the weekend in June that it happens. But last time I did it fully. And uh, somebody had a, on, in our walking party, had a miles measuring thing on a wrist or whatever. And we'd managed 19 miles on a 16-mile walk. Wow. So how off-route we went, <laughs> I have no idea. There's the brilliant patch where, uh, and actually this year, the year I did it last, it went... The other way so it, we went along what they now call the great ridge <sighs> down loose hill and back up jaggers and along there and there's a patch where you've kind of got up to the top of top of the hill from that side top of kinder from that side and it just looks like somewhere else like and you're just like where the hell are we <laughs> like and you can be looking at the you know you, you've walked along maybe to the top of grindsbrook and there's a patch between grindsbrook unless you're going you know i think i am very much in the habit of this as well and i think most people will just walk along the edge of the hill you know we walk along the edale side because there's a really great big path <laughs> it takes you all the way around you've been on the top of the hill it's fabulous but if you go out into the middle of the moor and then you start looking about you just don't recognize anything all the angles look really different and um oh i've not thought about this in a while but it's um what's he called Terry Pratchett uh, in one of his Discworld books where he has the witches in it they have gnarly ground they talk about on top of the moors which is where everything's a bit different and weird and like it's different time and space basically but it does feel like gnarly ground up there like you could just be anywhere and you could have been transported into a different realm and you know you you look at things that you think but I know the shape of that hill and I know how I know the outcrop of that bit of hill into the valley and how that looks and she's like that doesn't look like that it, yeah it does it just it's really different up there so I, I think it's kind of magic like that it does it just takes you out of place and time and it takes you out of your petty daily nonsense <laughs> and gives you a bit of a brain space which I'm not getting quite enough of nowadays because I do have a small child that turns two and haven't actually a foot on the backpack and been on lots of the the lower paths the kind of halfway up paths but I haven't taken all the way to the top of the backpack yet she doesn't like to stay in it very long (laughs) (laughs) I think trying to walk her back down the hill oh it's gonna be fun I'm sure (laughs) that'll come up in the next year wait till it warms up a bit and then we'll get those tiny legs up kinder
0: do you feel that you can get just as much value from walking in the valleys and the lower paths Mm -hmm. as you do to going up to the top of the plateau. And... I think you
1: get lots of good value. It's very different. Again, there are paths like uh, during the lockdown. I was just like, wait, I'm going to do all the paths that I don't do, and there were paths I don't think I've ever done, or at least haven't done for a long time, because it was you know quiet. And sometimes I feel a bit like if I take some of the more hidden paths, I don't really want people to know about them. And we have so many humans here sometimes that do so much treading, mm. <laughs> and. You know, sometimes I'm a bit like, oh, I love this little path. I don't want it to become a major highway of humans. So I'm just not going to walk it today because then nobody will know it's here. (laughs) Uh, And I know that's, you know, that's, it could be a bit selfish, but I think during lockdown when it was quiet, I did walk on paths and walk on, I suppose the thing is, I'm talking about paths that probably aren't paths because I've been, you know, trampling around long before I was reading a map. And most of the things I think of as paths (laughs) past the access line are sheep trails and thus, you know it's basically just me rampaging around across <laughs> bits of random hill but that's what i did for a large part of my life and it was fun and i love it but yeah it's very different there's definitely benefit to be gotten from it but there is nothing like the gnarly ground at the top of the hill
0: do but you have a particularly favorite part or route hmm on kinder well
1: my favorite route on underside on the underside is broadly bank like i love broadly bank i love millie's bench up on broadly bank now That is a very secure childhood location for me because Broadley Bank is in between Upper Booth and the village. So it was the route we took a lot. And I've got lots of memories of doing it when I shouldn't have been doing it apart from running to buy sweets from pennies. But like, um, there was a time the school bus used to be driven by a man called Grumpy Norman. It was snowing and Grumpy Norman refused to take us past the village up to Upper Booth. So he dropped us in the village. I was at Hope Valley College, but I think I was 11. He got into a lot of trouble, I believe for abandoning two 11 year olds two miles from their home on a snowy day um but we'd gone up to Penny's and bought some sweets so at least somebody knew where we were going we didn't do it so she knew where we were going but thankfully she did and uh, headed off up broadly bank in a blizzard to get home because for me that was always the logical route because it's the quickest walk it's higher uh, but it's quicker than going along the bottom of the valley because uh, you're missing out a corner and it did get a bit ropey on the bumps because you had got large drifts by that point. We would have been fine, but I do remember a walking party coming up the other side. I think what happened is Grumpy Norman had got back to the base and somebody like yo, oh, you're early and i been like yeah i've left them <laughs> and they've gone oh my god and uh, it was andrews buses i remember i think mr andrews had come out in a four by four and driven up to my parents house to check and you know or somebody had called penny and been like have you seen the kids and she's like yeah yeah they're just headed up the hill <laughs> we'll see you later it was me and a guy called hugh ramage who was living up at the lee at the time um yeah so lots of lovely memories have been lost in snowdrifts on top of hills and yeah so i'm very very fond of that walk and it's it's a point where you can stand and see the whole valley and there's not many points in edale where you can it just juts out that little bit and it can be up there and we used to go up there flying kites and stuff you know it's just a brilliant vista all the way up to jacob's ladder and then all the way back down to lady booth so that's my low level favorite point and probably my you know one of two favorite points on the planet the second being um santa cruz <laughs> where <laughs> i had a very nice uh cocktail uh it was very nice and santa cruz and Edale, the two places where you <laughs> need to be on the top, ooh, we just walk into the middle. I mean, I love Mad Woman Stones because who doesn't love Mad Woman Stones? I mean, come on, it's called Mad Woman Stones, <laughs> and I keep meaning to write something for Mad Woman Stones, and I haven't got to it yet. But oh yeah, that yeah, great. well, I, yeah, yeah, I just love it up there. And actually, if you kind of go what direction, Naughty Elephants. I suppose it is east, kind of from that kind of you start to walk that downhill again. That's just like, where the hell are i yeah. Just seems to be this huge expanse of moor that you don't really, you can't work out how it would fit into the geographical space that you believe exists. I think we kind of flatten the geographics of the moorland when we drive around it because you're used to being like Eadale and Hope, and then you go around to Bamford and the reservoirs, and you go around, there's the snake and stuff, and it kind of concertinas in your head in the car. And then you go up there and it's, it's huge. Mm. You've driven miles to get around this thing um so i find that be quite interesting but i suppose uh, i suppose it's got to be croden for me like i love croden because from our uh, house in upper booth as well you would go up to croden you go up to the rocks you've either got the waterfall which is a lovely scramble or you've you know gone up the hill face which is a pretty big scramble as well and on a good day like uh, that's where you would go and play hide-and-seek. Like, that's where you would just go. Because it, it, it didn't take that long to get up Crodon. I don't know why. It's quite steep, I suppose. It'd just be up. And um, from a very early age, I'd be going up with my neighbour Guy, who was an old guy. Old Guy Guy. It was <laughs> There was an older couple that lived next door, Johnny and Guy. And he had been a vet in Kenya. And quite a famous one. He wrote a beautiful book called The Mountains of the Moon. And uh, his grandkids used to come and stay and they were around my age, three grandsons, and they'd come loads of weekends. So I used to go to the Lake District on holiday with them and things. They were really good friends and, and still good friends, like with Tom, who's just moved back to Bamford, actually. So there we go. Everybody's nearby. But yeah, we used to go to up that path to the highest holly bush, which we thought was the highest holly bush in the world, halfway up Crodon. And you'd have your picnic at the highest holly bush and then go to the top. We did that from a very young age. And then when friends came, when you were a bit hungover, when you were teenagers, we just, I've got a lovely photo of my friend Daisy, who's just moved back as well. Everyone's <laughs> moving back! Uh, she's just moved back near Great Longston. And it must have been after sixth form, because I only met her when I was 16, when I started going to Lady Manor's to do my sixth form. But yeah, her and my old dog, Polly, sat on top of Crodon on a windy, slightly hungover, 17 year olds kind of day. So yeah, very fond of Crodon probably my spot
0: i think it's unusual up there because of the the trees at the bottom as well and mm. walking through the woodland and mm-hmm. then up along the waterfalls yeah yeah it's a it feels like a real journey yeah and then it gets tougher and tougher yeah and it's and steeper then, and steeper and then suddenly you're just looking down on it all and mm-hmm. yeah it's
1: beautiful mm. and it's great hide and seek when you were a kid yes uh, up on the big rocks and the wool packs sorry we've gone through from crowden along to the and seek
0: <laughs> there. Do you play music up there? Have you done a gig on kinder or have you just taken up an instrument?
1: I took up instruments when I was writing The Dark Peak and the White. So kind of I would I would take my fiddle around with me and all over the place. I'd usually be driving and not have to walk very far. But there was a couple of times I went up kinder with the fiddle just to... <laughs> record kind of you just listen and record notes and see what comes out but no it's a bit of a slog to be honest with a fiddle case on your back <laughs> but yeah it's, it inspires songs and the way my writing works anyway is usually a melody and it's usually in tune lines and it's usually nowadays that we have mobile phones that record stuff it's usually just me singing away into my telephone at random places i was walking on the other side uh, on Uh, in between mam tour and and back tour uh, again one point during lockdown on a really windy day you know one of those days where you can properly lean into the wind and there was nobody about absolutely nobody about and I wrote a little round uh, round, because I do lots of warm-up rounds called you're alive right now so you might as well sing (laughs) (laughs) and that was because I've no idea where that came from that was completely (laughs) random you know singing on top of a hill into your telephone brilliant yeah kind of job little reflection of life at the time you've done all right been where you've been and nobody knows what will do you in but you're alive right now so you might as well sing i think my earliest memories of kinder are with large groups of adults because there was beating the bounds and we were you know i can't remember how young i was i wasn't the youngest to ever do beating the bounds because that is oliver mount who did it when he was five <laughs> uh, yes very impressive but i do remember being up as a, as a kid and in quite a large walking group i remember the vicar being in the group and uh, Quite a lot of men who thought they knew where they were and where they were going, which is also one of my earlier memories of being on top of hills. <laughs> and I just remembered them. Uh, it used to be the case up on Kinder, and I think it has leveled out a bit with all of the work by Moors for the Future partnership and uh, the planting of the sphagnum and things. But it used to be so up and down. You know, the the trick to Kinder has always been trying to find the what do they call it, the water. Water thingy and it find the middle find the point the water's running off from and you've basically got a path right through the middle But unless you find that point you are in gruffs because you've, you're going through all of the water lines all of the, the the up and downs and we had been going up and down and up and down and up and down and I, you know You can walk make a 10 mile walk 20 miles by going up and down in those gruffs It's app and they're, they're not little like oh just put a lake, I'll jump this one like lots of them are like well, it used to be, as I said, I think they have leveled out a lot, but it used to be like and three minutes later you were coming out, you know, somehow finding your way. And it was so easy to get yourself turned around. You would always be, you know, turning circles in the in the top of the moors. There was this kind of unsaid, I suspect, kind of we're not sure where we are thing going on. And I remember them, I I remember we were coming to the edge of the of the moor and it's like oh well we'll just look down and have a quick check of edale and see where we are i remember looking over the edge and realizing it wasn't edale that you were on the wrong side of the moor looking over the hill in my head it was looking towards hayfield but it won't have been it will have been looking down towards the snake somewhere yeah and it just yeah it was a very early lesson in how you yeah you quite often not really in control over there the hill was going to tend you where it wanted to send you especially in the early days when you know we were taught to use a compass and we were taught to read a map quite young but my compass reading is still appalling (laughs) you know nowadays we all have phones and we have sat navs and we have things that show us where we are but i quite like not having any of that i quite like going up on a day when you have a day for the hill to take you where it wants to take you and that makes me feel like a child again that makes me feel young again because that's something we do as teenagers and young people. We don't go, right, we have to be back by three o'clock to do this thing. We have to do this thing. And then what are we are going to have for dinner? You know, when you're a child, you just go. You just don't plan. You just set off and the day will take you where it will take you. And you try and get down by night. <laughs> I think that is when you will benefit the most from being on top of kinder.
0: I know you travel quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's something unique about Kinder Scout? that is different to Mm -hmm. any other place that you've experienced Mm -hmm. i've not i
1: i remember no i'll be gold shake i remember going walking other places even as a young like person teenager in my 20s and being really surprised at they're not really being a big top like i i think i thought that all hills you went to the top of them and then there would be a, a couple of miles of moorland you know (laughs) and then i remember going walking on other hills and being like whoa there's what you just straight down the other side that's it i think i'm i know there's lots of other places that have big moors and big gnarly ground but i don't know there's something about this one and the rock formations we have in that space as well which i think are pretty unique i don't think i've ever really experienced another moor where I mean, it's like a playground up there. It's kind of crazy how many brilliant giant rock formations are in such a small space. Like I've walked a lot in Scotland and I've walked a lot in the lakes and things and they, you know, incredible spaces for all sorts of different reasons. But you don't tend to find another giant rock formation, you know, five minutes walk further along your path that makes you go, oh, that's interesting and funny and it's shaped like a... Anvil, and you know, or you know, oh, this is called Mad Woman Stones. That's a bit random. Um, I think for that, it is quite unique. And I think for all that we and you know, me personally, I do feel sometimes a bit claustrophobic about the numbers of people we sometimes have, you know, walking now. But I think one of the things that makes Kinder so special is how many people enjoy it. I think one of the things that makes it unique is that it is friendly like I mean it can be unfriendly it's a great big hilltop but it is also so beloved by so many people and there is there there is a really big sense of that like I don't know if I've ever been up there and actually felt afraid really maybe that's my horrible faith in this place uh, <laughs> but I, I have well I've been up there and having said that I do remember going for walks at phases in my youth where you've gone up in the snow and stuff and you're coming down and going, Oh, I feel really sleepy I'm just gonna sit down it's like no you're not gonna sit down and fall asleep here's how you die get off the hill get off the hill this is called hypothermia come on down we go down we go so yeah I mean hills kill people hills kill um be careful up the mountains don't fall asleep when you get cold you will die um that's a useful life lesson but yeah so I suppose they you know they are dangerous but there's, there's something about kinder that is very comforting and loving and maybe that is all the humans who find it
0: comforting and loving. Beautifully put, I think. Hmm. Just final... don't fall asleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my final question, mm-hmm. maybe while, well, if you want to have a look up to kinder now. Hello, Hello pal. <laughs> and imagine yourself up there, hmm. walking, singing, sitting in the sun. What makes you Wild about kinder. Oh,
1: It's hmm. a lovely bird just gone over as well to remind us about the wild of kinder. What makes me wild about kinder? I think The space and the sound and the smell. Like, I can't think about being sat up there without smelling peat. You know that smell that is up there that you just, you can't get it down here and you can't get it all on the way up. You have to be on the top, sitting in it. And there is a smell that's like iron and peat and bracken that is it's kind of like honey. It's sweet, but really earthy. And it's very, very unique. And the sound is all, even on a still day, there is always a tiny bit of some something windy rustling. I think the the space and the sensation is very, very unique. I don't think you could really say what it would be. It's intangible, but it is a unique sensation. I think
0: that's perfect as mm. a summary for the patron <laughs> of the bog. Patron of the bog.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mars, for the future partnership. I am your patron. I have spoken.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for a wonderful interview. No, yeah, you're very welcome. And then I wrote this very cheerful little jig about
1: Croden. Um, uh, this is